Welcome back to the podcast. This is James. I'm so glad you could be here with us. This is week three. We are talking about early church history. Um, in this series, we're mainly focusing on uh, the years 100 to 600. Uh, I'm using Nick Needham's book, 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. Uh, volume one is called The Age of the Early Church Fathers. Actually, it covers from 1st century to 6th century, so you have to include um, 0 to 99. I guess you could say up to 100 is the 1st century. Um, but we're going to get right into it. Uh, last week we covered chapter 2. This week we're going to cover chapter 3. Uh, referred to as the Apostolic Fathers. Um, you have to deal with not only the persecution that they had to deal with, but also their apologetics. Um, remember, the Roman Empire was still very much in control of the world. And, you know, Christians wanted to, well, not only wanted to survive, but wanted to uh, show, you know, the truth that um, a, a Christian who was a Roman citizen was going to pay their taxes and they were going to do the right things and they weren't going to cause any problems. So I'm just trying to set up my fan here. It is very, very hot still. So I've got a fan blowing on me. So I can... There, yeah, that's much better. So, after all the apostles died, who um, took over? And that's what we're going to cover today. Uh, there were... Okay, According to the book, there were Christian writers and teachers who lived after the apostles in the first five or six centuries of the church history. They're generally referred to as the early church fathers. Uh, now, by Mr. Needham's uh, book, uh, The Age of the Apostolic Fathers, it's really from 95 AD to 140. Now, the main writings that have survived were the letter of Clement, which was written to settle a dispute in the Corinthian church. Uh, they had uh, arbitrarily fired all of the um, presbyters and replaced them with newer, younger people. And Clement was like, hey, that's not, that's not right. Uh, these people have served the Lord faithfully and should not be uh, punished because of their age. Uh, the letters of Ignatius of Antioch. Uh, these were let, written to churches right before he was executed. The main theme is unity. Uh, there was a book called the Didache. It is the oldest surviving handbook of church discipline. It's dated about 100. Uh, the full title is The Teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles Through the Twelve Apostles. Uh, part one is doctrinal teachings. Part two is various church practices like prayer, fasting, baptism, the Lord's Supper, church leadership, how to handle visiting prophets. I mean, there were still itinerant preachers running around the countryside. And how do you know if they're teaching the truth? How do you uh, determine whether or not you should support them financially? So... Um, Papias was a bishop in the church in 
Heropolis, I believe that's how you pronounce it, in Phrygia. Um, there's fragments of some of his writings. Um, there was the Letter of Barnabas, which is about 120 AD. Uh, this had a basically it was an essay on how to interpret the Old Testament in a Christian way. Uh, it's very anti-Jewish in tone, so maybe it was reflective of the time. I mean, once once Jerusalem fell, the the Jews that were in that area um, felt the Christians betrayed them because the Christians would not participate in the actual battle. I mean, Jerusalem had been under siege. Of course, the reason they did that in the ancient Near East was that you're weakening your opponents who are inside of the city to the point where they can't really defend themselves. And you go in and just lay waste to them. Uh, There was a shepherd of Hermas somewhere between 100 and 140 A.D., uh, was written in Rome. Uh, it was a work of a Christian prophet named Hermas. He had a series of revelations from two different heavenly figures, an old woman and an angel dressed as a shepherd. Now, of course, the main concern in this book is the moral purity of the church. Um, there was a letter of Polycarp. Sometime around 110 was the date that it's given. Uh, Polycarp was the bishop of the church in Smyrna in Asia Minor, and he was one of the most famous martyrs of the 2nd century. His letter was written to Philippi, perhaps the best document from the age of the Apostolic Fathers for giving a feeling of what typical mainstream Christianity was like during this period. Uh, Polycarp's letter was mostly made up of quotations from the New Testament. He warned the Philippians from departing from apostolic doctrine. Um, he especially warns them about the heresy of uh, asceticism. I don't know why my phone keeps doing that. It's like I keep getting all these alerts, and it's like... It's just stuff that's really not that important. Um, um, he encourages them to live upright Christian lives admonishes them about the sin of greed and urge them urge on them the duty of submitting to their presbyters now the book talks about it uh, the early practice was that the words presbyter and bishop were kind of synonymous with one another. They were talking about the same thing. I believe it talks about the... It's talking about the same thing in the Bible. It later became to where the church had a series of or several presbyters that the senior presbyter was referred to as the bishop. So it's very similar in the way um, the the whole issue of the pope came about to be where you had 
several presbyters, but then the one, the oldest one, who did most of the teaching and preaching, became known as the bishop. In the in the beginning, he was a. They used the term first among equals. And then later on, you had bishops in each major city. Over time, the bigger cities, Jerusalem, Antioch, um, well, there's five of them. I forgot which, what they are, but I know he goes in more depth about this later on in the book, but there's five main bishops. And they refer to the bishop in Rome as the first among equals. But then they started referring to the bishop in Rome, and the the affectionate term was Papa. And that's where the word Pope comes from. So, just like... (laughs) Excuse me. Just like at the local level... You had a bishop who used to be first among equals. He came in charge of the church. Then you had Bishop of Rome, who was supposed to be one of five main leaders of the church as a whole. But then all of a sudden he, you know, come Pope Leo, became in charge of the church. At least on the eastern half of the empire. So, anyway, uh, you have the letter of Diognetus. Uh, somewhere between 100 and 150. Uh, even the author of the book says that nobody knows who wrote the letter or who Diognetus is. The letter is about the falsehood of paganism and Judaism and the superior teaching of Christianity. So, um, let's move on and talk about the development of Christianity in the age of the Apostolic Fathers. So, I'll read a direct quote from Mr. Needham. On page 58, he says, If the age of the Apostles was a time of pioneering enthusiasm and freshness, then the age of the Apostolic Fathers was a time of settling down and cons- consolidating and preserving the teaching and traditions of the Apostles. Um... There were four areas of development in this period. There was church organization, church teaching, church worship, and the relationship between church and society. So we're going to talk about those more in depth. Um, Church organization. I touched on this a little bit already, but who was to govern the church now that the apostles were gone? There were threefold ministry. The bishop, the presbyters, and the deacons. I said originally... Even in AD 180, bishop and presbyter were essentially the same office. Uh, Nick Needham says this on page 59 of his book. Pretty clear. Uh, They recognize the fact that, obviously, uh, some of the functions of the apostles still needed to continue on. uh, The bishops took on that role, but they were not apostles in status. They could not claim personal infallibility proclaim new doctrines, or write new scriptures. The funny 
the interesting thing is that Justin Martyr actually referred to the leader of the church as the president of the brothers. Okay, here it is. Here it is on page 60. Originally, the bishop was the senior elder or presbyter of first among equals. Likely, this pattern of leadership is based on the Jewish synagogue. Um, now, Jerome in the 4th century, even Jer Jerome said, originally bishops and presbyters were the same office. Now, Jerome claims the first bishops were ordained by the apostles, and so therefore he's claiming apostolic succession. So, it is what it is. Um, understand, Jerome wasn't around. Jerome was a, didn't show up until the 300s, the 4th four, century. So, you can't claim a pope that the pope has a lineage going all the way back to Peter if in the first three centuries of the church they thought of bishops and presbyters as the same office. Now, next area I want to talk about is the church teaching. Um, the interesting thing here, let me read this quote to you. This I find this very fascinating. It's on page 62. It says, In the age of the apostolic fathers, the church had an extremely narrow, conservative, traditional attitude towards doctrine. Christian teachers tended simply to repeat what the New Testament says without necessarily having any deep understanding of what it meant. Well, yeah, I mean, you need to have every... Every doctrine needs to be backed up with Scripture. Now, when you talk about what it means, that's a different story. Um, Michael Horton uses um, in his books, uh, I teach a, a class based on his book, Core Christianity, uh, where I work, and in Dr. Horton's book, he talks about the four D's. You have drama, doctrine, doxology, and discipleship. The drama is the unfolding of the events that happened, and the doctrine is the meaning of those events. And then the doxology is the praise that we give to God because of what God has done in our lives. And then the discipleship is the commitment to follow Jesus and to live out what he what he teaches or, or what he taught so there were some heresies back then asceticism uh, there's a Greek word dokeo to seem uh, Jesus was not a real man he only appeared to be he did not suffer or die it, the concept grew up uh, this docetic concept of Christ grew out of a Greek philo philosophical idea that flesh and physical matter hindered and corrupted the spirit so that God, the supreme spiritual being, could not have direct involvement with the physical world. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, you had the Ebionites. This was a traditional Jewish Christian 
who looked back to the earliest days of the Jerusalem Christian Church. These folks continued to practice the Old Testament law. For example, uh, excuse me, circumcision um, there's a very good chance that these are the people that Paul was talking about in Galatians in my opinion uh, Jesus was the supreme prophet not God in the flesh the one man who had perfectly obeyed God's law he became God's son by adoption at his baptism um, they believe that Paul was a traitor to the Jewish faith and heretic. Uh, Ebionism comes from the Hebrew Ebonium, uh, the poor ones. Is uh, This perhaps refers to their practice of voluntary poverty. So they made it a goal to live a life of um, minimalism. Um, Um, third area of the church we're going to look at is church worship what was a church, Christian service of worship like in the second century um, here's a quote from Justin Martyr we hold our common assembly on Sunday because it is the first day on which God put to flight darkness and chaos and made the world and on the same day they <sighs> say Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. I need to take a drink of water. Um, page 64 in the book. This is another quote from Justin Martyr on communion. This is second century. We call this food Eucharist which no one is allowed to share unless he believes that the things we teach are true and has been washed with the washing that is for the forgiveness of sin and a second birth and is living as Christ is commanded. So there I started using that term. Um, obviously, as a Protestant, I'm not very fond of that term. Um, but the whole idea of transubstantiation didn't show up until much, much later. Um, from Justin Martyr's account, the main ingredients of excuse me, Christian worship in the second century, uh, one, the reading and expounding of scripture, two, prayer, and three, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Um, According to the book, it said there was also solo singing and full congregational singing, although the latter did not become popular until the 4th century. And it flat out says that Christians did not use instruments in the 2nd century. So that's a little bit different than what we're used to today. Um... Theodoret of Cyrus is quoted as saying that he referred to using his instruments as only, quote, fit only for children. Now here's the thing. Before we get all um, well, we gotta do things the way they did it in the first century and get all gung-ho and um, 
fixed seats in the church was not a common practice until the 14th century. That's on page 66 of the book, my my friends. Um, and then it gives a kind of a sample of what the church or the service of worship would have looked like. Part one, you have the service of the word. There's an opening greeting by the bishop and a response by the congregation. You have a scripture reading from the Old Testament. You have a psalm or a hymn, and then you have a scripture reading from the New Testament. You have a psalm or a hymn, then you have a scripture reading from the New Testament, usually one of the Gospels, and then a sermon, and then a dismissal of all but baptized believers. Now, they had a practice back then. Why the pages are turning? They just did not want unbelievers around when they prayed. They felt that um, the Holy Spirit was present, and, the, and God was working in their prayers. So, the part two of the the Eucharist, you have prayers, you have a Holy Communion, and then you have a benediction. Um, we talked about the fact the early church did not want unbelievers present when they prayed. The second uh, thing that's noteworthy is the way that all the church members brought their own bread and wine to be used in communion. So, um, one worship custom which was integral to church life in the early centuries was the agape feast. This lasted up and well, it, it endured up and up to the fifth century, but started to fade into disuse between the sixth and eighth centuries. It completely vanished. Um, people were bringing food to church; they were eating together, and it was kind of an outreach to the poor. So, now the problem with living in the days of the Roman Empire, this is pre-Constantine, was that, and this is all on page 71 of the book, Christians could not take part in official state occasions, of course, there was pagan worship involved, Christians avoided secular hospitals because they employed priests of a pagan, pagan god. Um, many Christians would not send their children to Roman schools because that's there was pagan worship and religion taught there. Uh, a Christian artist could do little or no work for pagan customers. There were many careers that were closed to Christians. Politics, army, teaching. Of course, the, the real... Um, I think... The first church father that actually said it was okay for the a Christian to serve in the military, uh, especially to defend against an invading army, um, wasn't Augustine. It was um, oh um, Athanasius of Alexander, one of my one of my heroes of the faith. Um, Here's a quote on page 72. Uh, there were other aspects of Roman society that Christians opposed on ethical grounds. For example, 
Christians condemned the most popular form of Roman entertainment, the gladiatorial arena, where men fought each other to the death. Christians also rejected the widespread Roman custom of abortion, killing unwanted unborn children, and infanticide, which is the killing of unwanted newly born children. Um, Christians also had a different view of divorce, adultery, um, was probably the only um, exception. Or also if, uh, if uh, an unbelieving partner leaves a believer. Um, of course, a lot of this stuff, unfortunately, made Christians unpopular with their pagan neighbors who accused the Christians of being self-righteous and antisocial. Um, like I said earlier, on page 73 in the book it says, the first Christian to write in defense of war was Athanasius, the great 4th century bishop of Alexandria, who wrote that, quote, it is lawful and praiseworthy to destroy an enemy, unquote, and he's the first one to ever use the term just war. Now, there was persecution it wasn't empire-wide. It was mainly in Rome by Nero. Um, he reigned from 54 to 68. It was uh, Dominican. He also was from 81 to 96. Um, Nick Needham points out in this book that in some cases the persecution came not from the emperor but from the governors of the empire's provinces and from popular hatred of Christians. Because um, if they felt a particular religion was a threat to public morality or public stability, the authorities would suppress it. Apparently there was a cult in, it was called the cult of Bacchus, Bacchus I think. B-A-C-C-H-U-S. The Romans pretty much put a stop to it in 186 B.C. because it um, led its worshippers into extremes of sexual depravity and violence. Um, Now, why did they persecute Christians? The main reason was that other religions were very tolerant of one another. They didn't claim to be the only way where Christians said, yes, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So, now Jews were just simply following the tra- the traditions of their fathers, but they weren't going around trying to make other people into Jews. So, um, they also, Christians refused emperor worship. Now, the problem is, when you meet in secret, People don't know what you're doing. They try to explain what they don't understand. Pagans accuse Christians of cannibalism, incest, and black magic. You know, cannibalism because the Lord's Supper. They talked about eating the body and blood of Jesus. It was a symbolic act. The bread and wine does not really, or bread and juice does not really turn into the body and blood of Christ. But the pagans didn't know that. Uh, incest, you know, when you got people at church referring to each other as brother and sister, um, 
they didn't truly understand that we are a part of one family. So, now, up until, this is on page 75, up until 250, persecutions were local, they were limited to particular cities or provinces, and often short-lived. Of course, the pagans wanted to blame any local catastrophe on the church. Uh, There's no rain because of the Christians, sir. The first actual official pronouncement on how to deal with Christians was by Trajan. Uh, He received a letter from Pliny, the governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor, who wrote to Trajan and asked how to deal with the Christians. Trajan said, don't hunt them down. Do not accept anonymous accusations. But if someone is accused, they have to prove their innocence by worshipping pagan gods. And if they do... The magistrates can acquit them, but if anyone was found guilty of being a Christian, they must be put to death. That's pretty much was the policy for the next 200 years. Now, the worst persecution in the 2nd century actually came under Stoic Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who was from 161 to 180 AD. He had great contempt for Christians. He had believers executed in Africa, Rome, France. A large number of Christians in Lyons and Vienne in south of France were killed in a violent persecution in 177 AD. Um, And then the apologists. Oh, wow, it's already at 30. Basically, the apologists were people that were trying to defend the faith. I realize we're at 30 minutes, so I need to hurry up. Apologetics apologetics is simply defending the Christian faith from attacks against its belief and exposing the falsehood of what other religions teach. Um, They wrote these letters in Greek. They tried to show that Christians were good law-abiding citizens, that Christians pay their taxes and pray for the empire. So you had... um, Aristides, I can't even pronounce his name. Uh, in 140, he dedicated an apology to Emperor uh, Antonius Pius. Uh, he was a converted philosopher. Um, Athenagoras, who was another Athenian, he had been a Platonist philosopher before his conversion. He wrote intercession on the behalf of Christians to Emperor Marcus Aurelius uh, and his son in. 177 AD, he tried to disprove the claims of atheism, cannibalism, and incest. Melito of Sardis was the bishop of Sardis in Asia Minor. He was a great African theologian. Oh, says the great African theologian Tertullian admired his writings. Melito wrote an apology to Marcus Aurelius. He is the first person to write a list of Old Testament books. Uh, there was Theophilus of Antioch about why idolatry is false and why Christianity was true. And then Mincius Felix, probably of North African descent. Interesting thing is he wrote in Latin. He had a wide knowledge of Greek and Roman culture. He wrote an eloquent apology. Um, He set out the arguments between Christians and pagans. It was probably written around 230. Then, of course, Justin Martyr was the greatest second-century apologist. He had originally sought truth in Greek philosophy. 
especially Platonism, but he began to look at Christianity after he was impressed by the fearless way the Christian martyrs went to their deaths. He finally became a Christian, um, settled in Rome in 153, and wrote two apologies. Um, unfortunately, he was executed in 165. Um, and that's the end of the chapter. So we will get to chapter four next week. And uh, which is perfect because this is week three. We just did chapter three, so next week we'll do week four. We'll do chapter four, and uh, we'll talk about the Gnostics. We'll talk about Catholics, and we'll talk about Montanists. So, thank you so much to the faithful few that listen to this. Uh, please tell others about it, and please continue to pray for the YouTube channel. Uh, we're up to ninety subscribers, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, but really like to get to over 100 by the end of the month so please continue to pray for the, pray about that and uh i'm asking for prayer in a very personal matter um i believe god brought me down here to texas in february and um i really don't want to leave but there's a long story that goes with that and i don't i obviously don't have time to talk about it because it's past our 30 minute mark so i love you guys and uh don't forget there will be a video on friday so uh until then have a great day